today's our birthday. And yeah, Thrive Church is three years old today. We started the first weekend in October three years ago for weekly services. And so uh, we got some treats for you afterwards. So hang on tight. And uh, we got kids here and everything. So it's going to be fun. I'm really excited about it. <clears throat> so um, I remember, uh, I think it was either, I was either in the fifth or sixth grade. I'm not, not sure which which one it was, but I, I remember getting an assignment, a writing assignment, and I just, penmanship was not my thing, and, um, and those of you who have seen me write on a whiteboard, you, you know this, right, so um, I think uh, I was, I wasn't, I just didn't like writing assignments, period, but this writing assignment was awesome because I had to write a descriptive paragraph. And for somebody who has an overactive imagination, this is kind of like the literary equivalent of crack, right? I'm like, yes! So I decided that I was going to write my descriptive paragraph about the type of car that I wanted to drive. Now at that time, Speed Racer had the coolest car ever, period, okay? And it had all kinds of cool stuff on it and gadgets and whatnot. And so I wrote a descriptive paragraph about the car that I wanted to drive. And it was, it was, it was a mashup between the Mach 5 and pretty much every car that James Bond ever drove, ever, ever, right? So it was cool because it had jumping things on it, and mine had not just missiles, but also flamethrowers. So that was really cool. And so here I am just furiously writing this, this descriptive paragraph, and I am listing off all of the things that I'm all excited about, and I want to put it on there. And, and then, as if it couldn't possibly get any better, the teacher invited a couple of us to read our paragraphs to the rest of the class. It was like getting up in front of people and just thinking, this is so awesome and you're going to think it's that way too. Because I had downloaded everything my, in my brain on that piece of paper. And so I started reading. Now, mind you, I had not read this thing out loud previous because it was all within you know, about a half hour, 45 minute time of class. You see where this is going, don't you, right? So I get up there, and I'm all excited. By the end of the paragraph, I'm even bored. And I wrote the dumb thing, right? I'm just, I'm like, you know, nobody's paying attention. Nobody cares that it, you know, can fly. And, you know, I didn't even care at that point. And what I realize now, looking back on that horrible experience, is that my, my little project... My car that I had that was supposed to be the most awesome, awesomest thing ever had something that we call feature creep. Some of you know what this is. If you've worked in business, if you've worked on various projects, if you've done a home improvement project, you understand what feature creep is, right? So <clears throat> this is how it normally works out in my house. 
well, we're going to do this project. Well, if we're going to do that project, we might as well paint the walls too. And if we're going to paint the walls, we might as well replace the carpet when that's all done. And it just goes on and on. And all of a sudden, that little project gets to be about this big. And it goes from just a few of these to open my wallet, let the wind take it all. Right? It's feature creep. And that, that happens, happens to us. And it, it's one of, those, one of those questions, I think, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? You know, and just because you have that opportunity. And so I've worked on a number of business projects that were like that, and, and you know, like I said, home improvement. You, you probably have too. But the thing that I've noticed is this idea of feature creep has this way of kind of entering our lives. And not just in the projects, not just in, in work or, or home life or whatever. It's the accumulation of stuff. I remember one point, um, in fact, it was when we moved to Kentucky to go to seminary, and we were packing up the truck <clears throat> to move cross-country. Maybe you've experienced this too, but there, <laughs> there comes a point, oh, there's two or three realizations that happen when you move. The first one is, is that there's all this little stuff that doesn't necessarily fit in a box, and you don't necessarily know what to do with it, and so by the end, you are tossing it in garbage bags, and just throwing it on the truck because you got to get out of there because the next truck is coming in to move the people's stuff in, right? And you're kind of wondering, going, man, where did all this stuff come from? And I think it's kind of like rabbits because it's in the basement in the dark and it multiplies. That's how it feels. And then the best part is you get to your destination and you begin to unload the stuff off the truck and you are wondering why on earth you moved that all the way across country because you haven't even seen that in the last two or three years. That's feature creep. That's the accumulation of stuff. And I think that we all experience this, especially if you live in suburban America. Probably one of my favorite lines is George Carlin. Your house is basically your stuff with a cover on it. You didn't think you'd ever see George Carlin in a church, did you? Yeah. But I think he's right about this. And I was going to play that routine, but he uses some language that I can't, you know, can't have in church. But anyway, the, the point is, is that the idea of stuff is, I, it, it is all over the place. We all recognize this. We, we see these types, types of things. I just, I just remember um, looking at my wife saying, where did this all come from? And then you start tracking back in your head. Well, when we moved, um, about the same time, both of our parents moved. And for whatever reason, they decided that we needed some of their stuff. As if I didn't have enough stuff of my own. <laughs> yeah. It happens. And see, I know this idea of the accumulation of stuff is, is a really big deal. And you want to know how I, how I know that? Does this spark joy? Have you seen this person before? Yes, I have, I have a pile of stuff that sparks joy. I also have another pile of stuff that needs a spark and some lighter fluid. <laughs> right? And, and isn't it amazing? She not only has a book, she has her own television show you know, on Netflix. She's got her own series on it. And you, the worst part of this, I got to be honest, part of the reason, it's like, it's like watching, it's like seeing a train wreck. You don't want to look, but you can't look away. 
half the time when I'm watching that show is I just want to see how bad other people live, right? It's like, well, I'm not that bad, right? All of a sudden I feel better about myself, you know, kind of a thing. I don't have 3,700 gnomes around my house or whatever it happens to be. And my wife reminds me, have you seen your books? Well, that, that, does, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Those are tools, right? Yeah. And, and this whole thing coincides with a rise, especially among um, some of the younger gener- generations, with this thing called minimalism. And, and we've seen this um, in a variety of places. Uh, this is Joshua Becker. He's kind of the granddaddy of all of this. And he inspired a couple of guys called the Minimalists. Um, if you haven't listened to their podcast, I recommend you do. It's, it's very interesting. And um, there's another guy, his name is Matt Devella, and he did a, um, a documentary on the minimalists uh, for Netflix. It's very interesting to listen to him talk. He's got his own YouTube channel as well. And all these guys talk about this idea that it's not just about the stuff, but how it was cluttering up their lives and the decisions that w- they were making and, and uh, the types of money that they had to spend and and. and it's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about those types of things. Even if minimalism isn't your thing, I understand that. But the questions that they're posing about the type of lifestyle that we really want to live, I think, is, is worth thinking about. And, and I've noticed this, too, just in my own life. It's not just about physical stuff. It's digital. There's digital stuff that accumulates as well. And I'm not just talking about social media, although that is certainly a part of it. Um, I don't know how... I, I think I have tried almost every single to-do app that's available. That was free. I, I mean, I just have. I just, you know, I'm looking for that thing, that silver bullet that'll help. Because I got a lot. I got a lot. I got. I got a lot. I got a lot of tasks. So do you. And so we digitally we try to try to do this. And and I've tried it with the analog way. And I've you know I've done a number of these. And you probably have as well. And so we've accumulated all of these, and it clutters our brains. It clutters our thinking process. And to be honest, I don't need any more clutter up there. I got plenty, you know? And so we, we add these things to us. So it's not just even in our homes, though, too. It's also in, in business where we've begun to see this kind of move and shift into, uh, I, I guess I'm going to call it a more minimalism to it because I don't have a better word for it. Um, at least at this point. And think about the influence of Steve Jobs and Apple and just on the iPhone and just, you know, how, how simple it was and, and how sleek and elegant and, of course, design is a big deal to the folks at Apple. And not just in product design, but also in branding. I mean, there's just, just the visuals of what they do is just very, uh, very minimalist. And, and we can also see this in a variety of other places. Like, there's this kind of notion of the skewing um, mass production. So you have the rise of things like craft beer or craft soda or, my favorite, artisanal bread. Yeah. I had to look that word up. Artisanal bread. And, and, and I like it. And, and I'm willing to pay additional money for it because it's, it's all, you know, it, it tastes better. Um, how many of you have been down to the new Mother Road restaurant, series of restaurants. If you haven't been there, it's a cool place, but it very much is this craft sense of food. Um, Not that you don't have that elsewhere, but there's just a concentration of it, and you can see what it means. The the menus are a little more limited. 
because they're trying to focus on the quality of the food. And so there's this almost minimalism applied to it. Have you been to a Chipotle? Okay, you have basically four or five meats, a few different types of vegetables, but you can package it either in a burrito or naked or in a taco. Or, but it's the same thing if you really look at it. And the idea is to focus on the quality and the simplicity of it rather than the number of menu items. What happened to Applebee's? when there's like a bazillion different choices on, on the menu. And they're huge. My goodness, you got in there and the appetizer, like fed Lisa and I while we were in seminary. Just, just the appetizer. Well, that and we couldn't afford anything else too. But, but the, the point is, is that there's the shift. Applebee's is dying out and restaurants like that, but the Chipotles of the world are exploding. And even in business too, there's a rise in the number of books so uh, this is Essentialism by Greg McCowan, excellent book uh, to read about focusing on what really matters. Uh, the One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan, by the way, highly recommend both of these books. And then there's different methods in order to make sure that we're, we're, we're actually doing things that focus us and, and make sense. So Getting Things Done, GTD by David Allen is another great book and a great methodology if you're looking for all that. And all of this is an effort to reduce and to narrow. Think about that. And we're, we're seeing this in a variety of different places. And by the way, we even see it in the church. It's even in the church. Several years ago, there was a book called Simple Church. Some of you have read it. And, and the idea behind that book, and, and some others too, is really asking the question, what are we here for? And so back in probably the late 70s, early 80s, we had the rise of what was called the seeker-sensitive movement. And so you would have churches that, that didn't have a whole lot of trappings, but just focused on people and... and uh, you know, allow people to be anonymous if they wanted to, and it was big crowds. And, and, and there, there got to be a point where the church looked at that and said, okay, that was probably fine because it was a reaction to something else. But then they reacted to that. And so we had the rise of what was called the missional movement. What's our mission? Why are we here? Church, what are we doing? You know, what, what does Jesus ask us to do? And are we actually engaged in that process? These are all very important questions. But notice, again, it's this idea of reducing and narrowing. Getting down to the thing that matters, matters the most. And um, I, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. Some of you have heard me talk about this. But uh, a couple of years ago, I had the, the privilege of consulting with another church um, that was looking for a new pastor. And they wanted to ready themselves for the new pastor. And so I did a series of, of design workshops with them, and one of the, one of the exercises I had them do um, was I, I broke them up into a couple of groups, and I said, I want you to draw your church. And they kind of looked at me funny. I said, no, no, no. I said, I want you to just draw your church in the ministries that you do. And I don't care how you do it, but I just want to make sure that we understand what ministries your church is engaged in. So I think there's five groups give them a big sheet of paper and, and markers. And, and so um, I kind of watched them do this. And the one thing that I noticed is that every one of them drew a great big building. A little teeny tiny church. Um, I want to say the church at the time was running like 50 or 60, which was a little bit less than what we were here at Thrive. 
And I was watching this occur and the conversations that were happening. And so when they finished and they were satisfied with the drawings, we put them up on the wall. And I, I spent some time looking through with them to see, to make sure that we had all our ministries covered. Turns out, their little church of about 50 or 60 people were trying to do 36 different ministries. 36. So then I asked the question, I said, wow, that's great. I said, which ones do you do well? It got real quiet. And I said, really, there's, there's none of these that you feel like you do exceptionally well. Nope. And so I pointed out to them that our little church did five things. We do worship, we do grow, we do serve, we do kids, and we do student ministries. That's it. Why? Because we want to narrow and reduce and narrow. So that we're focusing on things that matter. Now, I'm not doing that to go, yay, thrive, although, yay, thrive, right? But at the same time, I wanted them to see that if you're shooting at everything, you end up hitting nothing. And so what we want to make sure that we do is we want to narrow that focus down and just concentrate on the things that we think we can do well. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect, but it's a whole lot easier to focus some attention on one or two or three things rather than on trying to do 36 things, you know, not even mediocre. Does this make sense? So we see this even in the church that's happening. Part of my job is to resist feature creep at Thrive Church. Because I want to make sure that we're doing Again, we still have to focus and we've got to do things better, and I understand that. But the whole idea is there's this craft appeal. This idea that we're trying to focus on the quality, not necessarily the quantity of ministries that we actually do. And I think that's helped us in the long run. And if you went and polled even our staff, I think they would tell you the same thing. It's because we spent time and energy on these few things, we're able to do them, do them better. And so, um, ultimately, what we're coming down to in this series of, of, that we're talking about with rhythms, about spiritual disciplines, about spiritual practices, is the practice of simplicity. It is a discipline to do because you have a lot of things competing for your attention. And I used to use the example of TV and magazines, but it's not even that. It's now, I get ads on Facebook that are really cool. And I'm finding that I'm clicking and I'm like, I don't know where to save this website now because I really want to come back and actually look at this. And, you know, I, you, maybe you run into that same kind of problem. But the series that we're talking about is we're trying to keep people who call Thrive Church Home connected to God some way, shape, or form, whether you choose to do it within a journal, whether you choose to do it in, in some type of prayer time, whether you choose to do fasting and solitude, we've gone through all of these spiritual disciplines, and the idea is to make sure that you are staying connected to God as much as you're possibly able to in a week, not just Sunday to Sunday. Because church happens Monday through Saturday. This is just the party. This is where we say, God, thanks, and we're going to celebrate all the things that happen. But the point is, is that your relationship with God day in and day out is the piece that actually makes church, church. And the relationships that you're creating in that environment. <clears throat> so I want you to stay connected to God. I want you to be able to slow down. I want you to hear his voice. 
And it's really hard to hear his voice when, he, when you're so cluttered. Last week, uh, I think it was last week, um, James in, in our lab, because uh, we're doing labs, there's another lab today um, at 4 o'clock at Thrive Space. Keep that in mind. But James did a lab, and he did a finger labyrinth. Do you know what a labyrinth is? Labyrinth is like a maze, only it has one way in and one way out. It's not designed to confuse you. And some of you have heard me tell this story before, but there's, uh, there's a couple of mazes, uh, uh, labyrinths, sorry, here in Tulsa. One is out at Hunter Park. If you haven't been out there, I highly recommend that you do that. But I have noticed something just in my own experience when I go out there and I go into the labyrinth and I come back out again, it's quite literally feel like I need to turn around and go back in because it took me one time in and one time out just to clear the noise in my head. And it's like, okay, it's like, all right, now I can, trying to simplify what's going on up here so I can concentrate on what, what God is, is trying to speak. So slowing down, hearing him, that's really what, what this is all about. And so simplicity, here's our working definition of it, is reducing distraction and complication to attend to what's vital or most important. That's really what simplicity is. It's saying, that's not as important as this. That thing over there is simply complicating my life. In fact, I don't remember what it was. Um, Something, I was at a store and I'm standing in front of a display. I don't remember what it was. But I'm sitting there asking myself, is this just going to complicate my life? I didn't like the answer, but I ended up not buying it if I remember correctly. And the the issue here is focus, ultimately, right? Um, I like this idea of simplicity. There's a a guy, um, his name is John Maeda. He used to be uh, the former director of the MIT Media Lab, and then he was a president of uh, the Rhode Island School of Design. Well, he wrote a book called um, The Ten Laws of Simplicity. It's really interesting because he tells a story that he started with 12 and he realized it was too, too many. But the first, the first law, uh, uh, rule for simplicity is that simplicity is the thoughtful reduction of things. Thoughtful reduction. It's not just cut and burn slash whatever. It's thoughtful. And so it really comes down to this idea of focus. What are you focusing on? Now, here's, here's the thing. And I, and I, sometimes when we do these topical types of sermons, um, we don't emphasize biblical passages, but but there's something here that you need to hear again. And you've already heard it, but you're going to hear it again because it, it bears worth repeating. Jesus simplified things for us. I mean, truly simplified some things for us. <clears throat> he made it very clear what he was after. So here's Matthew chapter 28. You, you've seen this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, the job is simple. Go make more disciples like you. That's it. You're not asked to do a whole lot. You're going to do that by going. You're going to do it by baptizing. And you're going to do it by teaching. So I've even given you the methodology to a certain extent. The whole point with this is, is that the, the methods, the, the way you figure this out is kind of up to you, but that's what he's after. That's pretty simple. But it's not easy. 
Let's be honest about that. It's simple, but it's not easy. And, and he also um, helped us with what was truly important, and you've seen this passage too. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So we had these two religious groups. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, at first glance, you would think that there's some type of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Well, yes, there was, but this was actually standard practice. For one religious leader, one religious teacher, to test another religious teacher. And when they had been doing quite well, they would bring out the big guns. This was the big gun. And he just said, what is the greatest of the commandments? You could tell an awful lot by, by, uh, uh, about another teacher by how they would answer this type of question. Here's what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he does this beautifully amazing, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's where the simplicity comes into play with this particular idea. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Law and the prophets, that's the Jewish equivalent of the Bible. They were basing everything they believed on the law and the prophets, all of it. And what Jesus says, when you strip away everything else, all the 300, 500, 700, whatever many rules you Pharisees have for your adherence, when you strip it all the way, two things, love God, love people. Again, it's simple, it just isn't easy, is it? Right? Because you got that coworker. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. That guy just cut you off in traffic. Or maybe you've got a family member and you've got a, a strange relationship with them. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that it's simple to love God and love people. And what if God asks you to do something that seems a little crazy? Like maybe talking to that person that you don't want to talk to. Or dealing with that heart issue that you've been trying to ignore. I don't know what it is. It's simple, but it's not easy. Loving God enough trust him through the process. Hmm. Love God, love people. You have to figure out how to do that in your area, in your context, but that method is completely up for grabs. We're trying to return to this idea of simplicity, but keep in mind, it's simple, but it isn't easy, and that's okay. It's okay to feel that way. And that's when you lean into God a little bit more, which means you've got to stay connected to Him. It's the only way to do it, I think. Recently, um, <laughs> this is one of those, those moments where I write this little note in my pulpit notes here. My, uh, my hope is that uh, I can be as transparent as I possibly can. And I, I recently learned that I personally have some uh, distractions, uh, some complications. My brain is um, 
too cluttered to demonstrate the type of love that I really need to. Too much to do that I'm forgetting about what really matters. Can I just tell you, that is not a fun thing to learn about yourself. And yet, the simplicity of it is crucial to following Jesus. And I would rather know it than not know it. Because I don't want to continue down the path of being cluttered and complicated. So what does really matter? The sheer volume of resources on reducing and narrowing and focusing underscores that many people are beginning to see things like materialism and consumerism and inequality and even food insecurity. All of these things are happening in the world around us. And, and, and I'm just going to tell you right up front, they will only get worse as our economy continues to soften. And I believe that it will. I think we're heading down that direction. I think at this point it's just a matter of time. Those issues, those problems that we're seeing, I think, are going to get worse. And so, really, the, the questions that are, I want to kind of pose to you, for you to, to think about, to wrestle with a little bit, what's your distraction? What is it for you? What's, what's complicating your life? <laughs> By the way, those are great questions to ask God in your journal, if you have one, it's a good idea. God, what's complicating my life that I really don't need? God, where am I most distracted? See what he says. My guess is you already know. You probably know what it is. Hmm. What would you like to focus on? Have you ever thought about that? What is it that I'd, like, if, if I could take away this, this, and this, and I wanted to focus on something, what, 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 what would it be? What do, you, what do you want to focus on? You personally. And then the, then the question that you kind of back into is, okay, what's holding you back from doing that? And really what we're trying to do is trying to get everybody to think, as you're connecting with God, what's really important? I mean, what's really important to you? How does it all fit together? How's your life actually working and what's keeping you from that? And by the way, if you're wrestling with that, God bless you, so is everybody else, and we'd love to pray with you about that. I'm wrestling with it. Other people are. I think that's just the nature of human beings in, like I said, suburban America today. So if you're wrestling with that, let's pray about it. So Jesus models us. He teaches us what's really important. He strips it all away from us. But you know what? There's something else that he did that I think is really cool. He gives us one other thing. He gives us this very simple ritual with very simple elements, bread and juice. And he's trying to remind us of a simple truth with that. He loves you. Let that one sink in. He loves you. He doesn't love just the best version of yourself, whatever that means. He doesn't um, look at you and go, oh, you could be better. Well, maybe. But he loves you right where you are. 
And when we take the bread and we take the juice, it says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you because I love you. So remove all the distractions. It's not about all the things that you do or don't do or could do. Remove all the complications. It's not what you think about yourself. He loves you. Simple truth. So on family Sundays when we get together, we have communion. And um, there's two sides over there. And uh, we're going to have the worship team come and sing. I think we're going to do that new song again, which I totally love, by the way. <clears throat> Spirit, lead me. Spirit, lead me. Spirit, lead me. And so when you go back, um, you just take some bread, rip it off, dip it in the juice. And, and you can either take your family off to the side or you can come back to your chair. I want you to do what's meaningful for you because this is your time to let it sink in that, that God loves you. And we're so grateful for that. So when you're ready during the song, just get up, make your way back. Use both sides of the table. Do what's meaningful for you. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, simple bread. Maybe it was artisanal, I don't know. Maybe that's the only kind they had. Maybe he had craft wine. Maybe that's the only kind they had, I don't know. But he took the bread and he broke it after he had given thanks. And then he passed it to his disciples and said, take and eat this. And every time you do, I want you to remember me. And I think implicit in that is he wanted us to remember that he loves us. And they didn't understand until later. And then after the supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, passed it to his disciples to take and drink this and every time you do I want you to remember me and I think implicit in that he was saying remember that I love you and this is all for you